We're turning to Matthew 3 and 4 again, where we've been the last two mornings. And if you've been journeying with us, um, the, the title of the whole week, of course, has been Gathered to Go. And I felt the Lord leading me to particularly the preparation of Jesus for the ministry, uh, the greatest ministry, the greatest mission of all on the earth, and how he was prepared and what we can learn from his preparation that corresponds to what we need as we gather ourselves to go into the world to preach the gospel. And on Wednesday morning, we looked at, first of all, how he moved from obscurity into prominence. And we concentrated a little bit on what the Bible actually doesn't say about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. We have little snippets of things that happened, but not a lot. And it was during those years in the hiddenness and the darkness that God was doing something very deep. And we tend to resist hiddenness. We want prominence. And yet, God very often is doing the deepest work in the dark. And then we looked yesterday uh, also um, at the fact that the Lord Jesus um, was spoken of by the Father from an open heaven as his beloved Son in whom was all his delight. And we saw the necessity of uh, ministering from identity rather than ministering for identity. And we need to hear the Father speak his belovedness over us. Otherwise, we might get the power upon us, but we'll have a blowout because we need to know our identity. And that's why and how Jesus went to the cross and did this great work of redemption, knowing who he was, knowing that he was sent from the Father and he was going back to the Father. But this morning, I shouldn't say but this morning, but there's a bit of a but to it, because we're looking at the school of suffering and how the Lord Jesus was prepared for ministry through the school of suffering and how I believe we will be also. And so we're reading this portion again, and we'll read a little bit more into chapter 4. Verse 13, then, of Matthew uh, chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting or remaining upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, Afterwards, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, and I want you to remember that, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Yesterday we saw the importance of knowing our belovedness. It's time to own your belovedness. That was the line of the song I shared with you. It's important as we launch into ministry for Jesus, preaching the gospel to every creature, that we we know we're sons and daughters, that we're ministering from our identity as children of God rather than trying to achieve something through performance or accolades. And if there is a secret to overcoming in the Christian life, surely it is, as Jude taught us, to keep ourselves in the love of God. As Paul prayed, as we saw from Ephesians 3, we need to be rooted and grounded in the love of God, the agape love of God. But it's amazing, isn't it, that you could be serving the Lord for many years and this truth escape you. Derek Prince revealed late in life that he battled with demonic oppression every day, every single day, until he was 80 years of age. It's remarkable. Multitudes, if you know anything about Derek Prince, multitudes were set free through his ministry, and yet there was a, a, a particular area of his own life where he was not free in his identity as a son of God and as God as his Abba Father. And it took a dynamic personal revelation Uh, of God's fatherly love to release him into that reality. And I'll I'll let him tell you it from his newsletter in uh, 1998. In his own words, he says, my understanding of God was revolutionized by a personal experience in 1996. Ruth, his wife, and I uh, had been sitting up in bed one morning praying together as we normally do, and I became aware of a powerful force at work in my feet and lower legs. And it moved upward until my whole body was forcibly shaken by it. Ruth told me later that the skin on my face changed to a deep red. But at the same time, I was aware of like an arm stretched out towards my head, seeking to press down something like a a black skull cap upon me. For a few moments, there was a conflict between these two forces. And then the power at work in my body prevailed and the arm with the skull cap was forcibly taken away and vanished. This is what he says. Listen carefully. Immediately, without any mental process of reasoning, I knew that I could now call God my Father. I'd used that phrase, our Father, for more than 50 years. Doctrinally, I was clear about this truth. I'd even preached a series, three messages on knowing God as Father. But what I received at that moment was, listen, a direct personal revelation. And then he goes on with a bit of biographical detail to explain how he believed that this oppression began uh, in India where he was born for the first five years of his life as he lived there. But but this is the point I want to make to you. He lived and ministered many, many years with an inner sense of orphanhood and he wasn't even aware of it. And at 80 years of age, he came into a supernatural experience of knowing God as his Abba Father. Now, the pattern seems to be 
that you have to hit a wall of some kind in serving the Lord before this is often considered. And certainly that was the case for me. I'll go into my whole story, but I was a pastor um, for at least seven years, and then I hit a brick wall of really stress and slight burnout, and I took three months off. And basically, in those three months, and I'm going back now um, probably about 16, 17 years, in those three months, I describe it as God started to take me apart to put me back together again. And I believe in some senses he's still taking me apart and he's still putting me back together again. And I think that'll probably be the way it'll be until I'm with him and see him, Jesus, as he is. But it was when I hit that brick wall that there were certain things that I questioned, received wisdom. And listen, I thank God for the background I had, a very biblically-based background. We were schooled in the Scriptures, men of God who, who, who taught me um, the truth of the Word. I thank God for that. But I have to tell you that whenever I read the word Father in the New Testament, I just saw the word God. I knew God was Father, but it didn't mean anything more to me than God. That's God. That's number one in the Trinity or whatever way we erroneously think of it. You know, that, that just means God. And there were other revelations I had, not, not least what the Holy Spirit's all about and all those kind of things. But all I'm saying is it was hitting a brick wall that brought me to that, that break, that stop that was necessary for me to actually have this revelation of who the Father really is. And sometimes walls are the way of stopping us in our tracks. And unfortunately, what happens is when we hit walls, our natural response is to give up. And you know, during the last two or three years of the pandemic, um, certain statistics have been showing that people in ministry have been really considering throwing in the towel. They've found it too difficult. And of course, it was the case before the pandemic but increasingly so during this very difficult time that we've all passed through. But even if it's not resigning as you serve the Lord, and you're maybe not in a full-time capacity of ministry, but whatever you're doing for the Lord, you might, might have felt after hitting a wall, I can't do this anymore. But there are even other people, they hit the wall and they don't understand what it's about, and they actually walk away from Jesus. I can't do this. It's too difficult. I'm going to talk about suffering, and it's a very deep subject, but what I want to say at the very uh, get-go is that God has a divine intention in walls. Now, I'm not saying he builds them, and I'm not saying he causes suffering, okay? And we'll touch on that a little bit later. But God has a divine intention when he permits us to hit the brick walls. It's his way of stopping us in our tracks to do an inward journey. Not do a runner, but go inside with him, of course. Now, walls are probably unavoidable in the Christian life. But I think it would be better if we were prepared to go to preach the gospel and prepared for hitting the walls by knowing that we are rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, that God is our Abba Father, that we're sons and daughters, joint heirs, we're adopted, we have the spirit of adoption, the spirit of Jesus within us, before we hit the brick walls, it really would help. Now, all that being said, okay, and I want you to keep that in your memory bank, knowing our belovedness before God 
as, as being in Christ and him well pleased with us and his favor being upon us doesn't guarantee our inheritance. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying. Knowing the love of God as a kid and him as our Abba Father does not guarantee that we enter into our spiritual inheritance. And there's a principle in the New Testament and it is this. Only mature sons inherit. And when I say sons, I mean daughters as well, of course. You see, the revolutionary discovery of God as your Abba Father and you're a son and daughter is, is incredible. And it's something that we ought not to move from in one sense. But some of us, when, when our eyes spiritually are open to this, we just want to stay in the kindergarten crying out Abba for the rest of our lives when actually God the Father wants us to develop and mature because he wants us to inherit in the family business. He wants us to be heirs of his kingdom. And children don't inherit. Mature sons and daughters do. Now turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to get you to do a bit of work with your Bibles or your phone or whatever you've got. Um, A photographic memory maybe. Galatians 4 verse 1 and 2. Now this is in relation to the law. Okay, I know the context of it, but it does... Um, show us a principle here of who inherits. Galatians 4 verse 1 and 2. Paul says, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ from a slave. Now we know an heir, I talked to you yesterday about we're not slaves anymore. We're not servants even. We're we're sons and daughters. So there's a big difference between a slave and, and a child. But what Paul is saying here in respect of inheritance... There's no difference, practically speaking, between a slave in the home and a child. And he goes on to say, even if he's master of all in inheritance, even if he's the eldest son of the father, he doesn't differ from a slave because he hasn't received in his, in his bank account almost, or in his hands at least, the inheritance. But look at what he goes on to say. But he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Now, we see this principle uh, in some of the parables of Jesus, where he talks about inheritance through faithfulness, even in the small things. If you're faithful in the small things, you'll inherit bigger things. And so, I want you to see this. Yes, we are heirs of God. Yep, amen. We're joint heirs with Jesus. So, we're in Christ. And so, everything in the will of God for Jesus, everything that Jesus gets we get. Everything is Jesus' destiny. It's our destiny. But here's the thing. If you want to do more than read the will, you've got to grow up. If you want to inherit, you've got to mature. And it is positional truth. Oh, this is all mine, and I'm an heir of God, and a joint heir with Jesus, and I'm blessed in spiritual heavenly places in Christ with everything. Yes, 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 yes. But here's the question. Where is it? It's in heaven and it's in my heart. Yes, yes, I agree with you. It's yours. But have you actually entered in practically to that inheritance? And I've got to break it to you this morning that one of the main ways this happens is through trial, through testing, through temptation, through suffering. Turn with me to Romans 8. And it's a passage on inheritance. Romans 8, verse 17. 
Romans 8, 17, Paul says, And if children, then heirs. What we're talking about, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, oh, there's an if here, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Praise God for that. But there is this suffering. There's a butterfly right there. Isn't that beautiful? I've never preached with a butterfly right beside me. That must mean something. Some of you prophetic folk can work that one out. Now, I have had the privilege this week of presenting Jesus to you. And Jesus is our great example, isn't he? And he is our great example of suffering. First Peter 2 verse 21 says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. How many of us in suffering are following in the steps of Jesus as our example? Now, of course, the ultimate suffering of Jesus, we think of the cross, don't we? And we know that it is finished to tell us die. The debt is paid. It never has to be repeated again, nor could it be repeated. And yet, we are called upon to follow Christ in his sufferings. And there's a rather strange verse in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. The NIV renders it like this. You don't need to turn to it. He says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking. You heard, right? I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to the Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul? Are you getting this right here? Was this a little blip where the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was on pause? Something lacking in the suffering of Jesus? Paul says, yes. And my sufferings are filling that up. And I think what he's inferring is that the people who didn't live at the time of the cross and see Jesus die, they see the wounds of Christ in our suffering for Christ's sake. And the New Living Translation renders it like this. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Folk, this is big. We are asked to suffer for him. We are asked to suffer for his name. And we're actually asked to die to ourselves. And we're not asked to, to atone for sin. But we are asked figuratively, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. There is a deep inner work that takes place where the cross comes and is embedded in your heart. I don't know how much you know about the cross. Maybe you came to the cross and you got your sins forgiven. Praise God for that. Isn't it wonderful? And the burden of your heart rolled away. But I wonder, you might have come to the cross, but how much of the cross has come to you? Where we deal with the dry rot. You remember the boat I was talking about yesterday? And the surface could look all veneered. But the dry rot that's deep within our heart. I talked on the first session about the, the sins of the flesh. And the, the, the filthiness of the spirit. Where the motives are of our heart come face to face with the cruel cross. 
And in that moment and moments, I have to say, of surrender and submission and consecration again as the cross comes with its shadow upon us, we move from serving our own mission, our own agendas, to being subject to the Father's mission. And so Paul can say in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith. And by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The cross was the ultimate suffering of our Lord. But you know that the cross wasn't the only suffering of Jesus. And this is key. Listen. The Bible tells us that through suffering, Jesus learned obedience as a son. Now, I have touched the last couple of mornings on mysteries, certain types of mysteries, and here's another one. And can I tell you something? If you're on the Christian any length of time, any mileage as a child of God, and certainly if you want to become a mature son or daughter, you're going to have to get comfortable with mystery. If you have to explain everything, you're going to be in trouble. Hebrews chapter 5, you might want to turn to that one. I think I would like you to see it with your own eyes. Hebrews 5, verse 7 through to 9. And I'm reading this from the NIV. Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. That most people apply that to Gethsemane, and that's true. And we, we sang about, not my will, but yours be done. But, but it's more than that. It's in a general sense as well. The sufferings of Jesus caused him to become an obedient son. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say, son though he was... He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect. Hold the horses a moment. He's having to learn something here. He's already the son of God. But he's having to learn something here. And the education he's getting is through suffering. And it's saying that he's made perfect. And here's a mystery again. We believe he was the sinless son of God. But we're talking about how in his humanity he had to submit his human will to the will of the Father, to the mission of the Father. And in doing so through the obedience of training and suffering, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And I just want to worship at that. Do you not? He had to learn obedience as a son. But here's where we go back to Matthew chapter 4 here, okay? Because it was this knowledge, right, that Satan had of Jesus being the Son of God, of his identity being connected to his inheritance and the salvation of the world. It was that knowledge that informed the enemy's strategy as he tested and tempted him at the very outset of his ministry. In other words, he was doing everything possible to make Jesus think like an orphan. The salvation of the world depended on this. Jesus learning obedience as a son through what he suffered. And if Satan could just deceive Jesus, 
to think like an orphan, he'd never be our savior because he would become subject to his own mission and in fact Satan's mission rather than the Father's. That's what's going on here in chapter 4. And by the way, can I just pause and ask you, whose mission are you on? We're going deep here to our motives that control. But listen, before Jesus could become the source of eternal salvation, he had to learn obedience as a son high by what he suffered. Jesus was in the training for the Father's mission in the school of suffering even before the cross. And we are called to follow him and take up our cross. And yes, taking up our cross mainly means suffering for the cause of Christ. And can I just say, I think we need to get ready for that as the church. Now, I'm not using the P word persecution. I think people in the West who use the P word persecution really haven't got a clue when our brothers and sisters all over the world are shedding their blood for their faith. But I think things are going to get tighter, more difficult for Christians in the public square and even those in church. But what I'm saying is there's more than, there's more than just our identification with Jesus and suffering for the name because there's also physical suffering in life. And there, there's mental suffering and there's emotional suffering and there's spiritual suffering. And some of that comes for our identification with Jesus. Some of it, not all of it, but some of it does. And the wonderful message in the New Testament is that God redeems all suffering ultimately for our good and, and when we talk about suffering, we, we very often go to immediately physical pain, disease, etc. But there's so much more than that. And one element of suffering can be enduring, persevering, tolerating something that is difficult. And that was part of the suffering of Jesus. He learned obedience by, by perseverance. In fact, Jesus knew that if he was to enter into his father's, his heavenly father's inheritance, he had to learn obedience even to his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. He had to obey his parents. And when he obeyed his earthly parents, then he graduated. Luke chapter 2, 40, 46, 52, you read all about what went on in the temple. And he said he must be about his father's business, talking about his heavenly father. But then just after it, it says, he went back to Mary and Joseph and he continued in subjection to them. That was part of his schooling of endurance and submission to, to a sense of suffering. And then there was his death to self-centeredness. We saw it in chapter 3 of Matthew where he begins to become sub subject and submissive to someone else's mission. And he comes to John the Baptist and says, would you baptize me? And John says, no, you should baptize me. You know, John's got this complex you understand? I'm not worthy to even loose the, the, the latchets on your sandals. Because it was looking to John like, you know, the choreography was, I would be in a place of spiritual authority baptizing you, Jesus. But Jesus was even aware of the need for death to self-centeredness. To be submiss submitted to another's mission. Even in that moment, Jesus subjected himself to one who was inferior to himself. That's humility. But it had to be done. That's what Jesus said. Let it 
that would be a fulfilling of all righteousness right now. It needs to be done, John. It needs to be done. And there's so many applications of that. But one of them, I believe, is this needs to be done for my, for my crucifixion before the cross. And then there's where we are this morning, chapter 4 of Matthew, the desert, the wilderness, where he suffers a dry season for 40 days, 40 nights of temptation. And look at, please look at the sequence of chapter 3, chapter 4 in this preparation of ministry. First there is Jesus' baptism. Then he's clothed with power through the Holy Ghost. And then he hears the voice of belovedness from the Father. And then he's released into ministry, but only after his testing. And often we reverse this. We seek release and disservice, hoping to find favor with God by what we do or by what we achieve. And it often betrays our orphan thinking. We don't realize we, we need to go through the wilderness. We need to go through the desert. Henry Nouwen has a sermon called Being the Beloved. And he, he basically shares that so often we define our lives And how we're loved by others by three things. This is what he said. First of all, we define ourselves. I am what I do. We touched on that yesterday. I am what I do. And then secondly, I am what others say about me. And that's probably the most important if we're honest. I mean, being honest, I'd rather you praised my message than cut it to shreds. And if a hundred of you praise it, and one person says something negative to me, I have the potential to nosedive. I have. Because for me, and I hope I'm not the only one here, that orphan within finds it very important to know that other people think well of me. And then the third way he says we often define ourselves is, I am what I have our possessions, our achievements, our degrees, our accolades. And he says our energies often go into those three things. I am what I do. I am what others say. I am what I have. And he says, imagine that your life is just a little line, okay, in the big scheme of things, a little line. He says this is one of the reasons why we yo-yo and we peak and trough, up and down, highs and lows. You understand? Because we can never always stay on a a steady stream if we invest our lives into these three things. Because this isn't who we are as children of God. And in fact, at death, we lose all of these things. Now look at the temptation of Jesus. Verse 3. Satan comes to Jesus and says, turn these stones to bread. Show what you can do. Show what you can do. Define yourself by what you can do. Get other people to love you and accept you by what you can do. We're in great danger of doing that, aren't we? Even as as Christians. And then you look at verse 5. What's the next temptation? Jump off the temple and let the angels catch you. And then the inference, I think, is hear what people will say about you in the holy city. As the word gets round. You'll never live this down. Define yourself and how you're loved by what people say about you. 
And then the third temptation, verse 8 and 9. Kneel before me, Satan says, and I'll give you all the things of this world. In other words, if you get all the possessions, then you'll be loved by everyone. And Jesus retorts with Scripture three times from the book of Deuteronomy with the sword of the Spirit, the rhema of God. He He runs Satan through with it. But I want you to understand that what he is effectively saying is, no, that is a lie. I know who I am. I am the beloved of God, and I know that his favor rests upon me, and I'm not defined by what I do or what people say about me or what I possess. I'm defined by the love of the Father. You see this? Henry Nguyen goes on to say that that's what allows you to live in a world that rejects you or praises you. That allows you to live in a world that praises you or laughs at you, spits at you, crucifies you, and you don't go up and down and peek and trough because your identity and your well-being and your, your core, and your grounding is centered not in what you do or others say or what you have. It's centered in I am a child of God. But you have to hear that you are my beloved. And Satan used these trials. And the the trials in your life, by the way, are used by the enemy to cause you to doubt God's goodness. And to doubt that you are a child of God who is cared for by him. But, But the converse of that is this is effectively how you overcome knowing that God is good, that God is your father, and that you are his child, and you are the beloved. Listen, the only way to get through the wilderness is knowing your belovedness. And Satan will come and test you in your area of identity and your area of belovedness. Look at what he said to Jesus. And I emphasized it in our initial reading. If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. And if you go back to chapter 3, I think it's verse 17, where the heavens opened. God didn't say. Did God say you're my son? What did he say? You are my beloved son. And Satan very conveniently dropped the belovedness. Because the belovedness is the secret to suffering. It's the secret to getting through. You know, there's a sense in that this is Satan's job and he doesn't even realize it. And, and I was reading, actually, in my daily readings, Mark's, uh, yesterday, Mark's rendition of, of this. And sometimes I, I think Mark must have been out of breath when he was writing his gospel. It's breakneck speed. And this is what he says. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels attended him. See what Mark's doing. One moment he's, he's hearing, you are the beloved of God. You're my beloved son. And the next minute, Satan comes with the broadside to test this. If you are God's son, define yourself by what you do. Define yourself by, by fame. Define yourself by possessions and achievements. Now, I understand something of spiritual warfare. I can assure you of that. But it's noteworthy to me that when Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan showed up on whatever day it was for the first temptation. 
Jesus didn't rebuke Satan immediately when he appeared and to tell him to leave. Get thee behind me, Satan. He didn't do it. Now, he did do it later on when the assignment was over. And there's a lesson in this. This is why we need to be led by the Spirit, not by formula. This is why we need the gift of discernment. We need wisdom and waiting at times. To, we, we, our prayers shouldn't be storming the heavens immediately. We should be waiting on God and saying, Lord, how should I pray here? What is the wisdom of, of your mind and your heart for this moment? But I want you to understand there, there are things, James is clear, submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The things that we immediately must resist. So I'm not saying we submit to wrong thinking and all that kind of stuff, demonic oppression and attack. You're hearing what I'm saying. I believe in healing as well. We should be going to God for healing. and Praise God for the healings here last night and probably the night before and probably tonight as well. Praise God for that. But what I am saying is this. You cannot be a Christian and avoid suffering. And you can't always declare it away. Satan was on an assignment from God. I can't work all that out. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. It says the Holy Spirit thrust him into the wilderness right after the moment of his belovedness was spoken over. The Holy Spirit. This wasn't an attack in that sense. He wasn't blindsided. This wasn't an ambush. This was God using the enemy. I mean, you read the book of Job, and it's very hard to understand. But read it. There's mystery here. There's mystery. I believe Satan is on God's leash. Yes. And I, I believe Satan can do an awful lot. And I don't believe God is the author of evil. And I don't believe God is the author of our suffering either. I want you to hear me clearly. But I want you to see that Satan will tempt us to think like orphans. That's what he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He caused them to doubt the integrity of the Father's promise to them. He tempts them to meet their own needs. That's what he's doing with Jesus in the wilderness. If you're the Son of God, define yourself by what you do, what others think of you, what you have. And what he would have been doing was effectively abandoning the Father's mission and accessing a shortcut, an easy way of winning acclaim and fame. And you can't do it. Listen, folks, you can't circumvent the way of the cross. Leonard Ravenhill's son relays how he was a mighty man of prayer. And in his latter years, he was around particularly charismatic Pentecostal circles, I think. And you know how sometimes we talk, you know, some of the young men were coming and, can we have your mantle? <laughs> Whatever that means. Can we have your mantle? And Leonard Ravenhill would say this, everyone wants my mantle, but no one wants my sackcloth and ashes. Jesus passed the test of sonship and therefore he was ready to inherit. Listen, kids don't inherit. It's after testing. And if you read Luke's gospel and his account of the temptation of Jesus, it says wonderfully in verse 14 of Luke 4, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And then we read on later down the passage, he's standing in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he's reciting Isaiah 61, the mission, the go. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me, etc., etc. It was all because He came, He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, but He came out of the test in the power of the Spirit, inheriting His mission. Listen, be under no illusion. You hear what I'm saying? I've been in healing ministry. God is, I've seen God heal in front of my eyes. I believe in freedom and deliverance and so on. God is not the author of evil. And he's not the cause of our suffering. But we're to tell you, he uses it. And it's very hard to get your head around sometimes. But he promises ultimately to use it for our good. And if it's not good, it's not over. And to me, that makes him better. Nothing's wasted. Nothing. Gene Edwards, in his book, The Inward Journey, says this. In every generation, there have been people who have emphasized how much blessing there is in Christ. In our day, this has come to be called the prosperity gospel. On the other hand, there are those who who always present the suffering of the Christian life to the point of morbidity. These, I suppose, could be called Christian masochists. The problem is that there's truth in both claims, okay? But be sure, this is profound, the prosperity gospel has always sold better than the cross. He goes on to say, young Christians are always surprised, even amazed at the extent to which the Lord allows suffering in each of our lives, and some of the old ones. Listen, those who have been raised on a prosperity gospel are very susceptible to having their faith destroyed when life, the world, sin, Weakness, family problems, poor health, and a myriad of other things come crashing down on them. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe in miracles. Yeah, you're hearing that, okay. But this stuff happened, happens, and spirit-filled Pentecostals and charismatics are not always good when, it, when, when the suffering comes because our theology has led us to believe that there's a, I'm a Christian, I'm a charismatic Christian, get me out of here. We hit the wall. Some of you are here and you've hit the wall. Or you're in the wilderness. And I believe in a measure of prosperity of soul. And I believe God can make you wealthy if he wants. And all the rest. I believe those things. But the prosperity message has not been the whole truth. And we as Christians, we want to know his power. But what about what Paul says? That I might know him. And the power of his resurrection. There we stop. Yeah? But he goes on, and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. And we are proud of preaching a full gospel, aren't we? But here's a fuller gospel, which may show that at times we're only preaching a half gospel. And what is that gospel? Listen. Most assuredly, Jesus says to you today, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now listen, whatever you are, whoever you are, whatever you can do, however you're gifted, whatever you have, whatever you possess, whatever others say about you, everything you are and have must come through the cross. It all has to be broken in submission. And the miracle of God's grace is we throw away broken things. God takes them up and he uses them. And I don't know whether you're a doer here today. You know when these people, active people, a doer, you know? That's the will. That's part of your soul, the will, the volition. And then there are other people and they're the feelers. You know, you sense this, you sense that. And thank God for those people, for those who aren't those people. And that's your emotions to an extent, the Holy Spirit moving through your emotions. Then there are the thinkers, the academics, the intellectuals. And we praise God that he's given us a mind. And he wants us to use it well. And the soul, the will, the emotions and the mind, they need to come to the cross. Because God primarily is not a mind and he's not a will and he's not an emotion. He has a mind and he has a will and he has an emotion. But he is defined as what? Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has to bring our mind, our emotion, and our will to the cross. And it's not he wants to erase it. He doesn't want to eradicate our mind, emotion, and will. What he wants us to do is to come to the cross and have a resurrection. That our minds, our intellects, our emotions, and, and, and our will are crucified, emptied, and surrendered to the perfect will of God and filled with the Holy Spirit. We equate knowing information too often with being qualified to serve the Lord. And that's why often we send people off to college before. That's how we prepare them. And I'm not against, uh, you know, education. I've had a good education, I thank God, for that. But training to go is largely aimed at the frontal lobe. But the cross does something deeper inside. It changes us. Because our primary need is not education. It is transformation. And that happens through the Spirit. In the soul. By the instrument of the cross. In the school of suffering. Let me quote Eugene Edwards again. I thought this was amazing. He says, The dearest, most uneducated, illiterate person in the world who knows how to turn and live in the hidden realms has more true grasp of the ways of God than all the information hidden in the largest theological library on this continent. Some of you know people like that. Call them simple souls. I don't know why. Do you know that the early church probably was, I don't know what the percentage is, but it was majority illiterate. They couldn't read. But the power of God was manifest in them. (laughs) Friends, there's a deep eternal work. And if we're going to be prepared to go, we need to know how to deal with obscurity. We need to be baptized in water. We need to be baptized in fire in the Holy Spirit. We need to be obedient. We need to be anointed. 
We need to be holy. Those things I've labored with you. We need to hear the Father say that we are beloved and we need to be rooted and grounded in his love. But we need to be prepared to understand the role that there is to suffer or we'll, we'll drop out or we'll give up. What do we usually do with suffering? We usually resist it. We do that with obscurity. We do it with hiddenness. We do it with brokenness. We resist it. And I'm not saying we shouldn't always resist it. I think we should resist it at times. But there are times we should embrace it. When it's the cross. I was reading this morning, or last evening, about Jim Elliot. You would know Jim Elliot, some of you who was a missionary to the Aka Indians, and he's one of the first people that took the gospel to these people in South America who didn't know anything of Jesus, and they were cannibals. And he was butchered, murdered, martyred. But Jim Elliot was crucified long before he died for the cause of Christ. If you read his diaries, they're profound. This is one of the entries I read last night. Listen to this. This is his prayer. Father, take my life, yea, my blood, if thou wilt, and consume it with thine enveloping fire. I would not save it, for it is not mine to save. Have it, Lord. Have it all. Pour out my life as, as an oblation for the world. Blood is only of value as it flows before thine altar. This isn't masochism, okay? The guy hadn't got some kind of martyrdom complex, you might think. It's only the love of the Father will allow you to pray like that. You understand? It's only the love of the Father enabled Jesus to go to the cross. It's only the love of the Father, love so amazing, so divine, that will demand your soul, your life, your all. And don't try and do this if you don't know that love. I felt the Holy Spirit this morning direct me to an old hymn from the 19th century by Henry Francis Light. I'm not going to read it all to you. I'm going to read a couple of verses. And listen, this is profound. Profound. I encourage you to go home and Google it and read the whole hymn. Listen to this. Listen. You want to close your eyes and be in a, a spirit of, of prayer as I read it to you. Listen. Jesus I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee destitute despised forsaken thy from hence my all shall be perish every fond ambition all I've sought or hoped or known yet how rich is my condition God and heaven are still my own let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love and might, foes may hate 
and friends disown me. Show thy face, and all is bright. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come, disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good for me. He got it. He got it. Not one without the other. He got the blessings. He got the abundance. He got the life. He got the Abba Father part. He got the belovedness part. He got the sons and daughters and inheritance part. But he saw that the cross was the way to mature. The cross was the way to enter in. You want to inherit the nations? As Psalm 2 says. As a cross will lead you there. Let's pray. Now we're going to take a few moments. There's been a definite sense of God's brooding over our gatherings in this week. And we need to reverence that and recognize it. And let God do what He's doing in all of us. What has God been saying? It might have been another message in the morning or an an evening message. But you have an opportunity now to respond. Listen, I've been confused about some of the things God has allowed in my life. And He's dealt with me around issues of control. Sometimes my prayer life can be just micromanagement. I don't want hassle. I want comfort. And the Lord is, I would have to say, I've only been learning more lately how many of the things I've resisted at times and been slow to learn. He's been trying as a loving father to get me to learn obedience through suffering to inherit, to graduate. So he can share stuff with me. You know, you don't give your five-year-old kid your keys to your sports car, do you? They need to be responsible to some extent. God's like that. And God is calling some of us to grow up. to bow the knee before the cross and let him do whatever he wants to do. I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm not going to tell you what he needs to do for you, but you know what he needs to do. Will you come to him this morning? Even come to the front if you wish. Be at liberty. Come into the aisle or the back, whatever you want to do, but just your way of indicating to God, Lord, I want to be prepared to go, but I can't go just yet. Lord, you you need to help me here. You need to help me here. Will you come and meet me at the cross? Come. I, I, I forgot, but I was thinking it would be wonderful to have a huge cross here. Um, 
just pretend it's there. Maybe we can put it up on the screen very quickly. But I mean, just to come to the foot of the cross. Whatever you need to do, confessing sin, repenting, embracing your obscurity, asking Jesus for his humility, whatever it is, I, I don't know, bringing this suffering to the Lord, confessing that you've blamed him for doing what's in your life that's wrong, that's been of the devil. I don't know. God is here. We're going to sing a final song that's, I'm going to pray in a moment, but it's a very precious one. And the Lord will minister to you and use it as a, a prayer to God as you come to him and do whatever you need to do this morning. Lord, we give you praise and we give you glory for any glimpse that we have of Jesus. And when we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father's heart. Father, you've revealed yourself to us and we thank you for that and we pray the Holy Spirit. Lord, the Holy Spirit. Oh God, I'm nearly hesitant to pray this, but that the Holy Spirit will apply the power of the cross to our lives, to our souls, our mental life, our brokenheartedness, our wayward wills, our hurting bodies, our pain. We believe in healing and we look for the healing always. We pray for the healing. Yes, Lord, yes. But Lord, whatever we're called upon, that path of suffering and desert, as long as it's your voice, Lord, we don't want to follow another. Let us know that it's your voice. And if it's your voice, give us the understanding and the grace to follow you with our cross, your cross on our back. For your glory, we pray. And though we may never understand the mystery of it all, that we'll know that if it's not over, because it's not good, one day you will work all things together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We don't understand that verse and we don't want to use it in a cliche way, but we believe it. We want to say our lives depend on it that it is true and you are a good, good father. We are your children and you've never seen the righteous forsaken their seed begging bread and you're not about to start. We hear your belovedness spoken over us and we choose rain, hail, hell, blood or fire to stand in our belovedness. And may we overcome by the blood of the Lamb And by the word of who we are.